Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Over 180,000 titles to choose from, from your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast for your free audiobook. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. You are listening to episode 53, Gaming Diversity and Homegrown Comics. Happy New Year's, and as we ring in the new year, we've got a fresh new episode ready and waiting for you. So sit back, relax, get yourself a cool drink, and ring in the New Year's with BGN with our great show that we have ahead of you. Our first segment is about diversity in gaming. We invited two great guests to come on, along with co-hosts Lauren Warren and Mel Perez. We invited Travis Williams and Keisha Howard, who's a part of a great movement amongst people of color in the gaming industry. In our next segment, we have Fred Nolan, who's a comic book artist and writer, and talks with Joelle Monique about his adventures in the comic publishing industry. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Thanks for tuning in. Travis Williams began his career in entertainment in 1990 as one of the co-creators of The World of Darkness, role-playing games from White Wolf. These World of Darkness properties, Vampire, Werewolf, and Maj, went on to become comics, TV shows, video games, and novels. As a game producer, Travis has worked on popular fighting games such as Street Fighter, X-Men Children of the Atom, to adventure games from Hell and Sanitarium, to MMOs such as Matrix Online and Vanguard, also to social gaming such as Pain on PlayStation 3. He is currently a producer at Magic Leap Incorporated, working on forms of groundbreaking digital entertainment. Sugar Gamers was founded in 2009 by Keisha Howard. She wanted to meet women with interests and ideas similar to her own, so she went on this adventure not only to find them, but to unite them. Keisha Howard works diligently to have events that make the fun of geek culture come alive while being surrounded by remarkable and unique individuals. Thank you for tuning in to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host, so excited for this segment. This is our diversity in gaming segment, along with our co-hosts tonight, Lauren Warren and Mel Perez. 
really excited for this for a couple of reasons. We, Lauren and I, have been uh, working on the diversity in gaming series for a long time on, on Black Girl Nerds. And uh, we have two great guests who have decided to stop by and chat with us to talk about not only diversity in gaming, but their experiences in gaming and how the community has evolved today in the digital age. So we have Keisha Howard and yeah. Travis Williams. Thank you so Hello. much for coming on. One thing I want to bring up before we get into the interview is uh, with respect to the diversity in gaming series. If you go to boingboing.net, there's a great article that was recently published that features Lauren Warren and the work that she's done on BGN with this series um, that is called Black Women Are Already Superheroes. And the website, the actual article rather, Mm -hmm. talks about the history of game development and also what's happening today with respect to not only game developers and coders and, and editors, but podcasters, bloggers, diversity consultants. So check that out when you get an opportunity. And Lauren, thank you so much for the work that you've done. I mean, this is like changing lives, I feel like, uh, featuring people of color, um, people that look like us uh, in the gaming industry. And we feel like, okay, maybe this is a field that I, I can be a part of. So, so thank you for featuring so many marginalized voices. So I want to ask both of you to both uh, Keisha and Travis we'll, we'll start with Keisha first and then Travis what got you into the gaming industry what was it either in your childhood or earlier adulthood that sparked your interest into gaming and tell us what exactly you do and why whoa that's a, that's a, like a, a long response but I'll try to make it quick um I got into gaming because living on the south side of Chicago uh, and, you know, with violence and poverty uh, and having three brothers, it uh, was, number one, a way for me to bond with my brothers. Uh, My older brother actually taught me how to read through playing Final Fantasy II. And uh, number two, it was was a sense of escapism for me, and it always has been. uh, working in gaming, uh, what I do now is have an organization called Sugar Gamers, which is an, an advocacy organization uh, for underserved demographics and technology, comic books, and video games. So, um, and I started doing that after I realized that, you know, let, let's see, I've been a gamer since I was nine or ten. So that's been 20 years. And when I was like 26 or 27, I realized that we're still having the conversation and self-identifying as a gamer to other women who who look like me. I never really found another person that looked like me six years ago that was into the same things as much as I was. I was like, I know they have to be that out there. I'm gonna, to build this community so I can I can find like-minded people and uh, I did it, and it's, it's been great. To to sum up my to sum up my career, every time I every time someone asks me that question, I get tired. Um, I've 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 been in gaming longer than I have not been in gaming. So um, I guess I started gaming at six or seven. Um, and that was with a Pong machine that my father bought. Um, later turned into 
uh, you know, Commodore 64, teaching myself how to program, uh, going through school, being very, very interested in, uh, you know, games. I remember actually, uh, before, uh, before schools really got segregated in, in, uh, Louisiana, where I spent part of my time growing up, um, I came into, uh, this one school that I was in, the, uh, the fifth grade and I was the only black kid in school. The only one. And well, let me rephrase that. I was the only black person. Um, and because it was, uh, because I was the only uh, black person, you know, I, I, I kept a pretty low profile, but in my desk, I actually found uh, a, a Dungeons and Dragons uh, box set. And when I found this Dungeons and Dragons box set, I started reading it, started learning about uh, you know, elves and dwarves and magic and, and, and so on and so forth. And it really got interesting. And I kept that up through, uh, through school. And when I got out of school and moved from Louisiana to Atlanta, it just so happened that another gaming company was moving there at the same time. Now that gaming company was called White Wolf and I had corresponded with them because I sent them all my materials that, that, uh, that I had actually kept, uh, as a uh, dungeon master. Um, they asked me whether or not I wanted to publish it. And I said, no, you know, this really isn't just mine. It's my group's uh, work. And uh, they said, well, uh, you should you should come and hang out when we get to town. And uh, that's really when my gaming career started at 19. Uh, I tried to go to college, but there was no sort of pathway to uh, to gaming uh, while you uh, in, in school. Um, there was no curriculum. Uh, and so when it came time for me to make a decision whether or not I was going to work at White Wolf full time or continue to go to school, it seemed kind of ridiculous to go to school to get a job in gaming or just keep my job in gaming. And and so I did pen and paper RPGs for almost four years. Uh, and then after that, I made the transition into, uh, you know, full on uh, electronic gaming. And that was in. Uh, that was in 1993 where I decided to go full on electronic gaming. So from 90, from 1990 to now, I've been in games, um, and doing every sort of game you could imagine from puzzle games to Game Boy Game Gear, massively multiplayer games to, uh, you know, even writing comics in my spare time. So it's, uh, it's been a great, uh, it's been a great ride. Oh, wow. <laughs> that it sounds like it has been. Given that you've been involved for so long, I'll start with you, Travis, since we just left off with you. What would you list as some of your greatest achievements in your work, in your career so far? Um, when I was 19 and I started working in gaming, uh, working at White Wolf was some of the most rewarding experiences that I've had in, in gaming. Um we created uh, the world of darkness. And so, uh, you know, most people don't realize that that Activision vampire game came from, you know, a pen and paper RPG that we created. Um, it was a series on Fox uh, for a while. Uh, so creating the world of darkness was, was definitely uh, huge for me. Um, working with Capcom early in my career and creating like the first six button controller for uh, a PC uh, so that we could uh, we could play Street Fighter on PC was was huge. Uh, helping publish the first Grand Theft Auto 
um, to being the first employee at uh, what is now the new Warner Brothers Games uh, was was huge, and also ushering in a lot of the social gaming uh, that is happening at uh, at Sony now because of uh, all the trials and tribulations we went through during the whole PlayStation Network uh, 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 creation um, and working on a game called Pain for five years there. Okay. Okay. And Keisha, with your advocacy, uh, what would you say are some of the, the biggest achievements that Sugar Gamers has had since its inception? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. Um, well, I guess we are the largest organization, um, the largest, largest social gaming organization in the Midwest. So, like, there's been a lot of uh, smaller organizations around the nation uh, that do kind of similar things, but we're the, the largest in Chicago, and we've had events that really change people's perspective and their dialogue as they interact with gamers, because we'll have events, and, you know, a lot of our members are just, you know, they are makeup artists or musicians or, uh, you know, they are lawyers or any, any type of profession, and you go to a place where it's normally a bar or a nighttime event or a nighttime space and there's we're all playing games and we're all at different levels nobody's judging and we're able to be in this position where we can educate people not only about games but about gamers and and that's been pretty pretty awesome um i've uh been grant because I've started this organization. I've been granted opportunities as well to speak to a lot of young women, and uh, th they have a different perspective about uh, working in the video game industry as well. Um, you know, with all the, the conversations going on about sexism and racism and gaming, it could be discouraging, especially if you have young girls that are raised on TV, young black women, you know, they're like, I want to be, you know, Beyonce or something that seems fun and glamorous. But then like showing them that working in gaming is not only, it doesn't only have intellectual merits, but it also is a very fun, fulfilling career path to, to go down. And it involves every facet of entertainment that they consume now. You know, uh, music and character design, fashion, um, game like there's just so many things that go into a game that young people don't think about that I feel that Sugar Gamers has successfully illustrated through its members. That's great. That that's that is awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Keisha. And I'll pose the same question to both of you because I think between actually working in the industry and advocacy and and through your gaming journey. Uh, I imagine both of you have some lessons learned. Um, would you maybe like to list your sort of top three lessons learned in, in your gaming journey and, and, and careers so far? Let's start with, uh, let's start with you, Keisha. Um, okay. My, uh, lessons in gaming. Okay. So when I first, first started Sugar Gamers, I, actually intended on just having like a group of competitive girl games gamers because that was the trend at the time it was very novel to have girls that could play you know our, our um f 
uh, and first person shooters and you know fighting games and racing games well it was just like oh that was a big thing like she can't play you can't play as good as as me and so then i wanted to have like this kick-ass group of of women of color and we're all just going hardcore playing these video games and uh I put out ads everywhere, made a website, I had this whole idea about how it would look. And interestingly enough, I got all these responses from women who wanted to be part of what I was doing, but they were discouraged because I pushed competition so hard. And they just wanted a community to belong to, to talk about their interest or to just be around other people that even gained like they did. And so uh, one of the lessons was, you know, like as a gamer right now in in our society, it it seems like you're forced almost to have to like certain things. If you're, uh, you know, if you self-identify as a gamer, you're forced to to keep up with these trends. And um, one of the first lessons I learned is that's definitely not what gaming should be about or is about at all because then you cut out all the 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 people that can learn from gaming whether it's bonding with with others whether it's being inspired by a storyline whether it's you know seeing some beautiful artwork i mean there's there's so much that doesn't have to do with competition that doesn't have to do with the the big blockbuster games like call of duty and you know um uh, Halo or Destiny and so on and so forth and um, so that was you know uh, a huge thing and then uh, now another thing that I understood was I, I, I wanted so badly at first to like oh this is going to be all girl girl power you know and so on and so forth and over the years I realized that that stance isn't you know it's good for business it's good to to um to pare down what I what I do in one statement, you know, to be like, oh, we're just a group of girl gamers, but really, we're not. And there's so many people um, of different races and genders that are parts are part of sugar gamer and supportive of it. That what has occurred is when we all actually get together in person is this learning experience about how people sort of identify. With, with being a gamer from their cultural standpoint. So, for example, we have a, um, a gay white man that's part of our group now, and him, he's like surrounded by all these black women, and he's asking questions about like, you know, race and gender in this space. And he can be educated from, not from reading an internet article, but by his fellow members in, a, in an organization that where we all share the same interests. So we have this common ground in which we can educate each other from a, a, a standpoint that's very healthy. Um, so I no longer make it just like, oh, it's all girls, because how do we grow that way and really you know, talk to the guys and talk to people of different races so they can be inspired to incorporate different stories and diversity and you know, so on and so forth. So uh, that was the, that's another lesson I've learned. I can't think of anything else right now, but those two have been like sort of major defining factors of what Sugar Gamers represents, which at the end of the day is community and uh, providing an avenue for um, 
for for learning and experience on a, on a healthy level. Right, right, right. I wanted to jump in really quick and ask a question about like the gaming avatars and and characters. I've noticed as of late that it's evolved significantly when you're choosing your character that they some of these game developers are doing a pretty good job of showing faces of people of color, uh, features of African-American characters, um, and, and being very good with the details. But do you feel like it's that there's still a lot of work to do in that area, or it, it is getting better and that um, the progression is, is definitely happening um, as it should? I mean, I think I, I see the progression happening. It's not. It's definitely not going to be an overnight situation but as long as i feel that the encouragement of the the younger people who are going to become educated in coding and programming and video game development and so and so forth uh as long as we continue to to expose them to how they fit into this industry that it can only be better and there can only be you know there can only be progression because people want to play things that are innovative and fresh. So, um, you know, I, I see it happening and I, I, it's not like, you know, we're not going to have a 50%, you know, female hero ratio, or we're not going to be able to tell all the stories by 2016 um, or, you know, at the, the end of the next year, end of 2017 even. But I do see the landscape of gaming changing drastically in the next five years like it's going to look very different okay thank you keisha um travis what would you say some of your lessons learned in your time in industry so far would be uh so um i want to first start with that last question that you had actually i I thought it was uh, i thought it was pretty um funny i had a anecdote about that um playing uh mass effect um Oh yes. And uh, when when I played Mass Effect and I made my Commander Shepard, um, and uh, after I after I made my uh, you know Commander Shep you know Shepard, uh, I was playing a game for a while, and then I went over to a friend's house, uh, and looked at his Commander Shepard, and I thought what was funny about that is is that you know I I I'd say I'm not the darkest brother, but you know I'm I'm, I'm pretty milk chocolate. Now, when I went over to my when I went over to my friend's house, he's a little lighter skinned, and his uh, commander Shepard was a little lighter skinned. Um, and so I think that subconsciously, I think people look to uh, you know transport themselves or or, or make an ideal uh, you know uh, representation of themselves in in gaming. Uh, when I was um, you know when I was just sort of getting into gaming. Uh, I remember playing a game uh, that, you know, my mentor, uh, Warren Spector, uh, made um, called Ultima Underworld. Uh, it was a great game. It was uh, 3D. It was, you know, very early 90s game. Um, but I thought the interesting part about Ultima Underworld was once you chose your avatar uh, and you, you made your avatar black, when you swung a sword and you picked up something, you looked at your your arm that was that was represented. It was black too, and I thought, "Wow, that's awesome!" And when I got an opportunity to talk to him about that, I said, "I want to thank you for that." 
uh, I want to thank you for that because uh, you totally expected to see a white arm, even though you had a, uh, a a black avatar. And it was just that attention to detail that made me feel more in tune, more, you know, like that was me. Uh, and I don't think people properly appreciate that. Uh, you know, where it's been or, or, or where it's come from. Um, so, uh, so on your avatar question, yeah, the, the, the more diversity that you can give your avatar creation, especially when it comes to making your main player character, uh, it, it really does pay off in player attachment, at least in my opinion. Um, so if, if, if I think about the things that I've learned and I'll, and I'll try to make this pretty brief, um, I don't make games for me. Um, when you get into the, uh, I think when people get into the, into, into gaming or in entertainment period, uh, it's a little selfish because you feel like you're a little drunk of power. Um, you can go make stuff and get paid for it. Uh, so let's just make stuff that you want. Um, and while that's great, you don't know from a business standpoint whether or not that's a good idea or not. Um, there's a lot of things that I like that might not be popular. Um, and so, you really have to make gaming or you have to make games for the market. Uh, so knowing who your audience is and what they want is important. You have to listen to those people. Otherwise, you're not going to be making games for anyone but yourself. Um, I think um, life sucks. Um, it does. You don't get paid enough. Uh, you you know, your, your, your boyfriend's probably not as hot as you want him to be. Your girlfriend's probably not as sexy as you want him to be. You know, you're, you're, you know, you, you know, you don't live in a castle or whatever. And what gaming allows you to do is for however long you're in that reality, it allows you to escape. And I think that when Keisha said, you know, that, you know, gaming is escapism, that's it. That's, that's it exactly. So what we're doing is we're selling people this uh, escapism. Um, and so if, so people play games to be empowered. So uh, a lot of people like tough games. I like immersive fun games um, because that allows you to uh, escape uh, and it allows you to have fun and it allows you to be empowered and it allows you to save the princess or the prince. It allows you to uh, fly. It allows you to shoot fireballs when you need to or whatever, or, or someone, uh, you know, comes up to your character and says, you know, you save the day, uh, you save the universe. And it's, and it's pretty awesome. So games are about empowerment. And I think, uh, the, the last idea, you know, the last big thing, at least, that I've learned is that, you know, good ideas, um, they're, it's, it's nothing. Um, good ideas are nothing. Uh, good executions are everything. Um, I hear, you know, as a producer, and I forgot to say that before, I am a producer. Uh, <laughs> as a producer, you get pitched a lot of great ideas. You do. Um, but great ideas are, you know, it's 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 like a good idea is I am going to I am going to start from the, uh, you know, the foul line and jump over, uh, jump over eight guys and slam dunk it. That's a good idea. Can you do that? Because that's the execution part. Um, so when you look at, you know, different technologies, if you look at, like, for example, an iPhone, an Android and a Blackberry, all three of those devices are the same idea executed differently. One of them sells really well. One of them doesn't really sell at all. And one of them sells pretty good. And so just just having a good idea, it's not enough. You have to be able to execute. You have to be able to say, well, you know, getting a whole bunch of, uh, you know, 
minorities together, um, you know, so that we can, uh, you know, talk about gaming or, or whatever. That's a good idea. You know, a good execution is, uh, you know, getting a whole bunch of minorities together, uh, making sure that they have a voice and making sure that they have the proper contact so that those voices are heard so that they can get the representation they want in entertainment. So, um, I'm sorry I went on for a while, but I, I think those, okay. are, those are, those are probably, you know, some, some really good things or, or, or some lessons learned. Well, it leads to a question. You said something. You said two things that, that stuck with me. Um, one, the comment about people being sort of drunk with power. Um, in making games for the market. And I think recently, uh, well, I know recently, not just in the tech industry, but it's also an issue in Hollywood as well, uh, two things, diversity and inclusion. Um, and both of those seem to have an impact on the product that's being put out. And consumers and professionals are calling out other creators for not producing content that really reflects the market, which is what you said. You don't know, make games for the market, but there's a huge segment of the market being excluded. Um, yes. from this. So how do you propose, or I shouldn't say that, that, that's a big question. That's like asking you to solve world peace and that's not fair. <laughs> so let me back up. Um, why do you think that, do you think it's a case of people being drunk with power and making games for themselves in the market? And I'm using that in air quotes, the market gets left out of the process. And what leads to that? Well, so, drunken powerfulness. Well, I, I, I... <laughs> I think it's sometimes people can't see beyond themselves. Um, and um, that's a skill that you have to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you have to learn that if you want to entertain people, you have to. Um, I, I'll give you some, I'll give you some perfect examples. I mean, um, you know, I don't want to spoil star Wars, so I'm not really going to spoil star Wars, but I can tell you that the lead characters are a black guy and a woman. Right? right now, I know it's Star Wars, but so were the prequels. OK, and the prequels didn't get to a billion this fast. Right. Um, did that have something to do with empowerment and diversity? To me, it did. Um, and so, uh, you know, being able to see beyond, uh, you know, what you normally would um, expands the market because we're not that different. Although being able to see yourself in certain positions, uh, you know, it, it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, you take a look at Thursday night, you know, on ABC, it's the Black Woman Network, right? I mean, you know, there's Scandal, there's Grey's Anatomy, right. there's How to Get Away with Murder, okay? And those shows white people watch too. But at the same time, you know, as a, as a Black woman, you know, it's got to be like Shangri-La, you know, because it's like... Finally, people see that, you know, we, you know, we as black women have, you know, uh, we can be successful, we can be vulnerable, we can be evil, we can, we can be, you know, all these things. Um, and there's no downside to that, right? right? There's no downside to that. I mean, uh, and, and, and I think that when people think that uh, just because you're diverse, um, that somehow that means you're alien, is, is just ridiculous. But what it does is it allows people to, uh, you know, it allows people to to see themselves in those situations, and it, it makes all the difference in the world. I, you know, and and I can't even I can't even begin to tell you how much difference that makes. But you know what? Uh, you know, you're women, so I, I'm I'm sure you know better than I do. 
Yeah, no, you hit it right on the head. And it, and it seems like that's where an organization like Sugar Gamers really succeeds is because they are a diverse group and they are an inclusive group. And I, I don't know if you guys have uh, charter uh, groups elsewhere, but it seems like more groups need to sort of take that approach with being not just for women. Yes, let's include let's include gay men as well, because we all have that same purpose. And I, I think somehow that something needs to happen in order for that same spirit to translate into the corporate world. Um, and it seems a bit slow, but like you both mentioned before, they're, they're making gains. Uh, I just wonder what is it that could sort of lead to more gains. Um, but maybe it's just, we need more, we need more organizations like sugar gamers. We need more producers or developers with a bit of an open mind. Um, there's some sort of internal things that need to change. Keisha, would you say that, um, would you say that maybe your gaming experience is sort of influenced by, you know, if, if a character is, looks like you or do you feel like you can sort of en engross yourself more in the story if it if the character is more representative of you? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Representation is everything. Everything. Absolutely. It's always yeah. been everything because being the only girl in my family, like if, if like I didn't like things that were like I always liked the the I don't even know how to explain it but I, I didn't really like a lot of toys made for women but whenever like a, a stereotypical boy toy all of a sudden became a you know became more marketed to young girls like I was all over it so like for example when they came out with the pink case for the game boy I was like I don't I hate pink I hate it but I was just like, they didn't forget about me. Like, I exist. Um, but my, my older brother bought home the first Tomb Raider. And when Tomb, when, when Tomb Raider first came out and they had those terrible graphics, well, it wasn't terrible at the time. They were just magnificent. But, but when they first came out and you see the, the first pixelated version of Laura Croft, she was very brown with brown eyes and big lips. And like I, I almost lost my mind. I was just like, "Is this, is this a black woman on a game? What is going on?" Like I didn't know that it could be possible. I must have played that game so many times. My brother thought that there was I played it more than he did, and um, it was then that like it, it kind of for me clicked a little bit. Like um, that it, it was very mean, a, a very meaningful thing for me for me to represent myself as a gamer at like 10 or 11 years old which was what 1985 or four or whatever so um you know it, it you know even though i got ostracized and teased a little bit as a kid uh amongst other reasons for identifying as a gamer uh that experience was what made me stick to it you know, like that, that was the thing that made me forever, that imprinted on my mind that this, this escapism that I, you know, chose gaming to, uh, to, to have, to have escapism, um, really could include me and I could show other people that they could be included too. And, uh, yeah, representation is everything. <laughs> and I guess that's just my point. And it does make a lot of difference to see you know, representations of yourself, especially as a young person, when you're consuming products, because these products are, are what's going to 
inspire you and motivate you to make the decisions for your adult life. So if you see something that doesn't visually have any representation that you identify with, you're not going to think that that is for you. And that's why there's been, you know, oh, that's one of the many reasons why there's been this disparity between women and minorities in gaming. Because if you're a young kid and you're like, oh, I want to be this and I want to be that, a lot of times you, you want to be things that you see, you can see other people doing that look like you. And if you don't see or are exposed to people that look like you making games as a kid, like as an adult, we can wrap our minds around it. Like everybody's equal. We get it. But at, when you're in your developmental stages, that is everything. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I can, I can speak to that also. Um, I try to make it my, my business to go to, to as many career days as possible. Um, I have a friend of mine whose uh, mother teaches um, kids in, in Watts. Um, and to look at those, to look at those minority students uh, and, and look at me when I tell them all the games that I've created, you, you would have thought that I was like either a rock star or an alien. One of the two, by the way, that they looked at me because they had no idea that, you know, black guys did what I do. And they asked me, they said, when, you know, when did you decide that you wanted to do this? And I said, when I was nine. And so, you know, Keisha's 100% correct. I mean, you know, when you see that, when, when you see that people who look like you um, are doing things that you want to do, um, that, that you, you dreamed of doing, you know, it, it just makes you think that those things are possible. And, and when they see, oh, it was you. Yeah. Um, it makes all the difference. Okay. Okay. Great. Thanks guys. Mel, did you have a question? Yes. Um, I'm kind of looking at the gamer gaming culture from outside looking in. So I would, um, Hold on, let me get my question out. <laughs> so this year, especially, it seems like there have been a lot of um, press and articles about, you know, gaming culture, some of it positive, but a lot of it negative. So I just want to ask both of you, do you think things are getting better? Do you think things are getting worse? What is the state of the culture now? You know, what would you tell, like, a newbie how things are? Well, uh, Keisha, you want to go first? <laughs> sure. Um, well, at least for me, because I'm definitely more so from the consumer perspective, um, and the, the people that gravitate towards sugar gamers are similar in this respect, but I've... The conversations about gaming, are they, they, they are on both sides of the extreme. They need to be had to expose certain problems, but there's also a level of oversensitivity that goes with it, too. Because, uh, for example, uh, like when um, we play online and someone says something inappropriate, uh, you know, there's what where is the line between, you know, fun trash talk and, you know, actually being inappropriate. Because, like, when I'm around the, the members of Sugar Gamers, they trash talk all the time. 
So are we going to enter into this very sensitive culture in which we're, you know, saying like, excuse me, I'm going to shoot you in the head and call of duty. Is that okay? Or am I offending you or anything like that? Like, are we going to, to, to go into that? Like, I feel that more importantly, people who want the newbies that want to be in this industry have to number one, understand that it's competitive. Gaming isn't going anywhere. Everything has some element of gamification in it and it behooves them to learn whatever elements of gaming that they can because it's not just going to be on a console or a pc or your phone but pretty much in every facet of our lives and uh if you're not ready to be competitive take rejection speak up for yourself if someone you know uh says something that's offensive if you're not prepared to do that then, you know, getting in this industry is, is already going to be difficult, even if it wasn't riddled with the problems that it has. Um, gaming, it's just like almost if you wanted to be an actress or, uh, you know, a, a movie producer or something like that. Those are, are people already conceive of them as very competitive uh, field. So they're ready to take, you know, a lot of the, the pushback that comes with trying to be in a competitive feel like being in gaming is not easy by any means and uh whatever whatever however you engage with gaming you know um especially if you want to get paid from it in any capacity uh you have to be prepared to 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 understand what a competitive environment looks like as a consumer uh if you're just like a straight con consumer there's a lot more sensitivity there's a lot more communities that have that have representation um and there's a lot of games made by indie developers so you know you don't just look at the commercials that you might see on tv and think those are all the games that exist because you know going to the conventions that i go to there are still games being made they're indie games that that have really just that are solid with diversity with great stories and it's not like a, a forced diversity it's not like okay i'm gonna make this game but it's gonna be pc but games that actually tell compelling stories that are fun to play but they're not going to be like presented to you on a platter you, you have to actually immerse yourself in that world and just like you have this diversity in gaming you know podcast um and you know i have sugar you know uh, the things that are, are going on, you kind of have to look for them and engage with them if you're looking for something specific. You can't just expect, you know, it to be right in your face uh, right now. So either way, you know, um, most of the gamers that I know and most of the people that I, work, that I know that work in games kind of understand that they're, they're problems, but they're prepared to deal with the competitiveness of it all and push their, you know, ideas of innovation and equality into what they're doing, into the stories that they tell, into the people that they talk to. So um, I think, you know, at the end of it all, it's it's getting better, but it's not, you know, if you're, you know, uh, expecting to, you know, pick up something right now and it just have everything that you ever wanted that represents all your feelings, then you're, you're going to, you know, sort of be disappointed. But um, if you're ready to kind of sift through it and do your research and really see what's out there, you'll see that there's a, a abundance of, of different things that are going on. And there's more that's coming down the pipeline. So I'm excited about next year and, and the games that are coming out and the, the stories that are being developed and how people are engaging with games now. So it, it's, it's, it's super exciting. The, the idea of being a gamer um, 
is like it, interestingly enough it's both good and bad that um gamers uh now it's just not a novelty like it used to be you used to be able to say like i'm a gamer and that like meant something good or bad and now everybody's a gamer it's trendy to be a gamer oh wow that's that's great so uh, the landscape is definitely changing and but regardless it's still sort of this competitive interesting place where you have to have a little bit of a thick skin um if you're going to immerse yourself in it i went from being the only uh black person in the room uh in the early 90s to go into a blacks and gaming women in gaming event last year at gdc and there being hundreds of people in that room um that was awesome um and it does uh it 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 shows how big gaming has gotten it is it, it's it's showing that you know the the, the people uh, who are making games are more diverse now, but I'm encouraged by what I see, um, and it is because uh, more people of of, di- of diverse backgrounds are are, are making games, uh, and and it shows. And now whether or not you know those are minorities, uh, whether or not you know you're gay or lesbian or transgender, all those. Uh, you know, all those minorities are slowly but surely sort of, you know, being represented in, in, in gaming uh, because as we build more complex worlds that get filled with characters, uh, it just starts to ring true when those characters feel like real life. Um, and so uh, I am hopefully optimistic because I have seen what it used to be like. And it is nothing like that now. That's so great to hear. This this was a really great segment. Thank you so much, Travis, Keisha, for coming on our show tonight. Really quick before we end the segment, can you give us your shout outs? Let us know where we can find you on the web, your social media handles. We'll start with Keisha and then Travis. Uh, well, you can just... Uh... You know, we're on all the social media platforms, Sugar Gamers. Uh, you can just find us at Sugar Gamers, uh, SugarGamers.com. Or if you just want to get to me individually, just take the S off Sugar Gamers, and I'm just at Sugar Gamer. So, uh, and I'm all on all the social media platforms, so you can find me really easy. <laughs> no shout-outs my way. I'm, I'm, I'm busy at magically making stuff I can't talk about. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so you know any of my shout outs get me canned um so um and uh you know as far as social media is concerned uh i'm up tenebration on both instagram and and uh and, and twitter and i'm usually just raging against the dying of the light on any one of those <laughs> clearance level on fleek there i so, see so, so. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Travis. Thank you, Keisha. And thank you, Lauren and Mel, for co-hosting. Great, great, great stuff. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks, guys.
Fred Nolan draws from a deep well of inspiration ranging from the Expressionists to underground comics. His illustrations have appeared in SF Weekly, LA Weekly, Tennis, Bike, Nickelodeon, Canoe and Kayak, Illinois Times, Xbox Magazine, Tokyo Pop, Santa Fe Reporter, and more. His sequential art has been featured in the Cartoon Art Museum and the Oakland Museum at the Oak Installation. As a cartoonist, he has produced a series of increasingly innovative eccentric minis. His current project, Black Sheep, features his most ambitious work yet. The six-part Neighborhood of the Beast explores the darker side of suburbia. Hi guys, welcome to the show. Fred Nolan, author of Black Sheep, Teats of the Boar, and Infallible Lores. Um, Fred, can you give the audience a quick elevator pitch for your latest work? For my latest work, all right. Well, my latest work would be Black Sheep number three. And the elevator pitch for this would be drunk driving and strippers. <laughs> it truly is. That is a great, very quick. I love it. Um, okay, uh, so I'll just dive right in. Um, I noticed you write a lot about people being stuck or uh, kind of reliving memories, uh or riding around in the same town, like, kind of year after year. Where does that come from? That comes from my youth. I grew up in a small town in suburban Southern California. And uh, in my, you know, coming up through my teens and into my early 20s, it felt fine, you know, because you have such a, I at least had such a small worldview. But as I, like, kind of got older, that felt like kind of sticky and claustrophobic. It actually kind of makes me think of that, uh, Tom Waits line, flypaper towns, like the town I grew up in. I knew people who would leave to move down to LA, which was like an hour away, and invariably end up back in uh, in uh, the town that we were from, in Ventura. So it kind of comes from that. In Infallible Lore, which I really like, by the way, um, for those of you guys who haven't yet read it, uh, it's kind of a history of popes. Um, not the entire lineage of popes, but a really tumultuous time where popes were being killed and doing a lot of killing and all kinds of horrible, kind of really awesome if you're into gory things. Um, yeah, the death. medieval popes were a whole breed apart. Yes, absolutely. Um, and in comparing that to your other works, I was wondering, is there a difference in the way you approach uh, your autobiographical work as compared to your fictional work as compared to the historical works that you've done? Well, with historical work, it's much easier to be detached. I have to actually work to like not be precious and not be defensive with my autobiographical stuff because you know I don't want to make myself look horrible, but you know I have to do it. So it takes more work. Whereas the historical work is a lot more academic, so it's uh, it's much easier to get in there. And actually, that's why Infallible is like really kind of so messy. Because, I mean, it just really lends, the subject lends itself to that, and it's easy to go there with that. What I really appreciated about Infallible was that uh, a lot of comics history work tends to be historical fiction, uh, kind of placing new characters in uh, set periods where we know what happens and letting them kind sure. of explore the area, whereas in Infallible, it's a just a direct history. It's pure facts with some really dope art next to it um, thank you yeah absolutely. i really appreciated it in reading it um i've you know read a lot about the borgia but not uh so much about all the popes before and after so i thought that was really cool what comes first for you the image or the words uh they come simultaneously 
I actually, I never write a script. I always, when I'm writing, I do like a breakdown and a rough script simultaneously. How did you develop that style? Is that just kind of over time or have you always been off the cuff like that? I, I didn't know the right way to do it. So, <laughs> so since I was a kid, like I have always done that and I've tried to separate out scripts, you know, and like work in the morning, but it feels a little clinical um, for me. Like they're just, the words and the pictures are simultaneous. Like they just exist in my mind at the same time. And uh, as an aside, like I've heard that um, like the old animators, like the Chuck Jones era animators, those guys never worked for, from scripts. They kind of apparently worked in the same way, like just this kind of spontaneous, you know, all at once welling up of like the story, the people, and the dialogue. So is there a lot of having to go back, or, or are you kind of a first draft guy? Like what ends up on the page is, is meant to be? Um, I will go through, because these are rough breakdowns that I'm working from, and I will go through after I have like a whole comic drawn and scripted out. And then, you know, here and there I'll find where something's not flowing right and change that. And even when I get to the drawn page, like I'm not that attached to what I've already written. If, I, if I'm in the middle of it, you know, I want to go somewhere else. Thankfully, I don't have to redraw whole pages because I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> but I can kind of like, you know, get a little jazz with it and <laughs> bend the pages to go where I need them to go. You've been drawing since you were a kid. When did you make the leap into trying to do this professionally? Um, we're considering this professional? I mean, I, you, you published, <laughs> you're self-published, and showing okay. up at conventions and selling your work, it feels professional to me. Okay. I, I really should not be so self-deprecating, <laughs> but um, I first started doing like actual published work. Um, it would have been in the mid nineties. Like I was in an anthology with some friends of mine in my hometown called Would I, that was like this kind of punk rock comic book anthology. And then I kind of broke off on my own to do my own comics in probably 96, 97. I started doing these. Excellent. Um, music is a huge influence in your work. Um, yes. do you have like a huge record collection? Where do you kind of draw that from? Or, or, more, more specifically, where uh, does music start entering your work? Do you listen to music while you work? It's mostly coming from uh, just stuff you like. Well, these days, funny enough, I don't listen to music while I'm working. I actually listen to podcasts while I'm working. So I'm usually listening to comedy nerds talk about inside baseball with comedy. You know, just like, oh, where did you get that inspiration from? And I have no idea why I'm not a stand-up comic or anything. <laughs> It's just interesting to me. Like in my free time, I do have, I don't have a big record collection. I have a big MP3 collection now because I ripped them all to MP3 and uh, sold sold all the uh, CDs for pennies on the dollar because um, they're worthless now. But uh, yeah, I've, it's always, music's always been a really, really big deal for me. What bands are kind of influencing you the most? Well, I mean, the ones that I always come back to, like, I'm kind of a rocker. So, like, you know, I'm, I have always loved David Bowie, which, you know, coming from, like, this religious Southern family, you know, having, seeing him all glammed up did not make them all that happy. <laughs> um, I, I'm a big, big Steely Dan guy. Like, I, I remember being probably four years old and hearing Ricky don't lose that number as I was sitting in my mother's lap, you know, driving through Oxnard, California. And this is, you know, the seventies. So there's no seat belt. There's no child safety seats. <laughs> it's like, you know, you just, you know, sit down and, you know, 
pray for the best. <laughs> but um, yeah, I remember I just, that's like, that's the oldest song I can remember. It's like, and it was probably at the time, it was probably in 1974 that I heard that song. Uh, Led Zeppelin I love. Um, I love Lead Belly. I love a lot of old country and western, like Merle Haggard. Um, kind of, kind of goes all over the place. Like there is a there is a substantial swath that like was given to like the punk years, but eventually, I kind of like people who can play and I like people who can sing, so I still have a fondness for that. But it it was kind of short lived. You know, I was more attracted to the energy of punk than the actual music of it. Are you enjoying the Alabama Shakes at all? I haven't heard them. What? Like I've actually gotten, I've gotten really behind. I had a kid about a year ago, so like oh, okay. I, I that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, yeah. If you have a kid, uh, makes it difficult to to try to keep up with all the other stuff. If you get a chance, I would definitely check out Sound and Color. It is super fun. And I have heard that, and I want to go check out Kendrick Lamar. He like keeps making everybody's like top, you know, top two list. Apparently, like this last album of his mm. is just like cat's pajamas. So like, I that's on the short list of stuff to listen to soon. Yeah, he's got uh, Yellow Wolf produced a couple of his albums, and that kid just rocks a bass so yeah, and- good. He's a kid. My guy's like young too. <laughs> He's a baby. It's crazy. <laughs> young and profound. Yes, absolutely. What drew you to indie comics? I mean, do you have any desire for the big two, or are you cool, kind of telling these uh, kind of small? I don't know how to say small epic. It was very oxymoronic, but <laughs> but they're they're uh, small stories in that they're self-contained in towns, but they're big in that they kind of touch everybody if you grew up in a small town you can really connect especially with black sheep yeah well i i grew up like you know listening or listening to reading all of you know all of marvel's run all of dc's run and i was like really into that until eventually i there's nothing more boring to me than somebody who can do anything like somebody who can like throw a car and can like fly around the planet to me that is so uninteresting. Like what's, what's interesting to me is like people's little psychology and their little foibles and it's relatable, you know? Mm. So when I was much younger, I did have some aspirations to be a mainstream cartoonist and I actually used to draw in that style. I couldn't imagine doing it now. Like I'm sure I've just completely lost, you know, all that muscle memory. Um, but uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, del- I'm happy doing the indie comics because there is, I don't have that whole I have to make it as a cartoonist thing. Like, I am free to just make the stories I want to make. You know, there's not anything writing on it except for my time and a small amount of money. So I'm curious as to who your big influences are. Because, um, audience, if you look up some of Fred's work, uh, it's kind of like nothing you've ever seen before. It's a little bit like Beavis and Butthead. You have these really big heads <laughs> and smaller bodies, but there seems to be more detail in it to me. And I'm just curious who, who influenced your art. The big three would be Peter Bag, Dan Clouds, and I'm going to count them as one, but the Hernandez brothers, the guys who do Love and Rockets. Yeah. Like there, you, you'll, I mean, I kind of wear my influences on my sleeve here and there. Like you'll, <laughs> Definitely hear it. See some love and rockets in there. You'll definitely see some hate in there. Um, yeah, and like those, yeah, those guys are just the best as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's others that I like quite a lot. You know, there's uh, Julie Duchesne. A lot of these people aren't publishing that much anymore, sadly. 
Um, what's his name? Bob Fingerman, the guy who does minimum wage, also a huge influence. Oh, Bob and he's back at it too. Which yeah. Is- yeah. This last run has been really intense and yeah. so fun and, and interesting that he did chose not to switch up anything. He didn't, he didn't yeah. throw them into the future. He didn't, you know, have them grow at all as people. <laughs> it just picks up right where it left off. He, well, he knows people and people don't change. <laughs> This is true. This is very <laughs> true. Yeah, and I was a little worried because I was just like, you know, that was one of my favorite comics back in the '90s. And when he, when I heard it was going to come back out, I was like, this is either going to be the best thing ever, or it's going to make me weep. <laughs> and I'm really happy to see how he's just really pulled it off amazingly. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what's your work ritual like? Do you have one? Do you have set hours, or kind of as inspiration comes? Um, well, so up until uh, my son Langston was born, I used to keep really regular hours. I have an art studio, you know, where I actually go to do all of my work because that way I can like put all my reference on the wall. I don't ever have to clean anything up. You know, it's just there. And it's also like this space in which, you know, it's designated that I'm going to work. So these days, what well, used to be I was in there three, four days a week, and I would go way, way into the night. Like, I would go sometimes till sunup. Now that just is not possible because (laughs) one-year-old really doesn't appreciate you having bloodshot eyes and, like, having, you know, less, like, ability with language than he does because you're so wiped out. So I get in there probably twice a week. I actually went today, and uh, because work is a little slower, I work as a graphic designer for my day job. Over the holidays, I'll probably be in there a lot more to, like, bang out some work while the opportunity arises. Right on. What materials do you use to work? Are you strictly an inks guy? I am inks and ink wash. Like, I'm, I'm really into traditional media. I know a lot of artists have a specific brand they use. I don't like to tease anything else. Do you use a specific ink? Oh, I'm into um, the uh, Super Black. I'm trying to think what it's called. Yeah, I searched high and low for years to try to find, like, a good ink, and there's a, an illustrator I'm very fond of who uh, uses Dr. Martin's Black Star, Black Star Matte, and it is it is the goods. Right, and what do you like about it? You like the way it flows? You like just the, the density of the color? The flow of it is excellent. Like, it doesn't get clumpy. It just, like, and I work with brushes and quills. I don't use pens at all. And it works perfectly with a brush. Like, it just flows right off the brush very smoothly. The color is very fast. So, you know, when you're going in with uh, ink washes on top of it, when you go through to a race, you're not going to lighten the ink up as much as you would with a lot of other inks. And it just sits on the page really nicely. It's a really good balance of, I think it's the lacquer balance that makes it do that. That's awesome. Um, do you think it's important to study other forms of art? I know a lot of uh, comic artists do either like sculpting or um, part of creating their merchandising is uh, like badges or other things as part of their Are are you mostly uh, focused on drawing or do you do other forms of art? Oh, I actually, I try to keep... I try to pull from everywhere except for other comics. So, like, I have just a handful of comics that I will read, but I think it's actually really necessary to keep, once you've, you know, kind of hit your stride, for me, I find it's necessary to keep those other comic influences at bay. And, like, I try to draw from film. I try to draw from music. Um, I I don't actually play anything, but, like, I try to, like, look to those. I look at paintings, 
um, for inspiration. But um, yeah, it's 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 good to get as wide of a swath of inspirations as you can. I think it's like really good to stay away from things like video games. <laughs> I think that tends, I see a lot of like books that are like clearly, I think video games are perfectly fun, but yeah, I think it's good to keep the hours of playing those down and try to like just go out and see things. You know? Video games can be um, soul crushing when you're trying to create in that I could definitely beat that next level by like three hours of time into it, or I could, you know, bust out those three pages I really need to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, I actually don't even know. I mean, I love video games so much. I do not own a console because I wouldn't get anything done. I like they're that. so engaging. Like I'm just like I cannot possibly like my my woman will leave me. <laughs> <laughs> my art will suffer. I'll lose my family. Like just yeah, I'm a little too compulsive for them. Yeah, I'm really torn between, like, really wanting that next-gen console and finishing a script. <laughs> you know, priorities. It's challenging. Yeah. Um, so, as a black artist, do you feel responsible to show black culture? Like, in your uh, work, you've got a lot of diverse characters. Um, and I'm wondering, what does diversity mean to you? And then, is it important to you to show it? Or do you kind of just do your own thing? It's interesting. For a long time, I did my own thing, which was because I come from the suburbs, that's what they look like. Like, it was very white and Latino with, like, a sprinkling, like, a dusting of black people. Like, I was one <laughs> of five black people in my graduating class in high school. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten and done more reading and done more research. I've actually started to get really into, like, the project I'm working on right now, I'm working on a 10-page story about the... Uh, have you ever heard of Major Taylor, the cyclist? No, I haven't. He was... Uh, from the turn of the century, he started racing. Like, cycling was really huge in the U.S. and in the world, you know, and certainly in the U.S. much more than it's now uh, around the turn of the century. And he was a champion black cyclist from Indiana, you know, from, like, 1885 to about 1905, somewhere wow. in... Um, and he had to face just all this prejudice and actually had to go to Europe to, to get a fair shake. You know, even back then, you know, they what it didn't just start with Jimi Hendrix. Like, even back <laughs> then, you had to go to Europe if you were black. Um, so I'm working on a comic about him. Awesome. And working on a comic about him, I've come across these other turn-of-the-century black cyclists. And then there's, I'm forgetting his name, but there's the Olympic cyclist from, uh, I think, the 1984 Olympics. You know, it's just like, and it's, cycling's not huge in the black community. And I'm, I'm an avid cyclist. So this is actually, like, my love of cycling and seeing where the crossroads are with, like, my culture, you know, and cycling has actually drawn me more into that. So I'm actually planning on figuring out a way to, like, do more comics about blacks and cycling. That that's, makes sense. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, I also grew up in a most. I grew up in a mostly white town, uh, where like I was the only black kid besides my brother until junior high. So yeah. you really identify with uh, kind of looking around and not seeing yourself. And then, um, if you guys have heard the feminist speech, uh, I cannot recall this woman's name, but she did the TED talks where she talked about how uh, growing up she just only read about white kids and so you know she would draw white fairy princesses and yeah. uh, would, you know when she wrote stories that's who she was writing about and it's it's interesting to slowly kind of uncover 
your history and then parts of yourself and, and how that comes into your work. So that's really awesome. I liked your uh, short about your bicycling accident. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really great. You had, you had a really human elements in there, especially uh, kind of confronting the driver afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a really funny moment because, yeah, that was um, a few months after I'd gotten divorced and that guy was going through a divorce at the same time. And it was just like, yeah, it's a very this weird meeting, you know, his bumper met my tire and then we met each other and we met in the middle and that dude <laughs> immediately paid for the damage. Super nice guy. But it was a, it was, it was a very uniquely Oakland encounter. I'd have to say. Yes. I can picture that. Um, in the same way, like does Oakland have like bike lanes? Yes, it does. That's amazing. LA kind of has them, but not really. And I'm always terrified. I have a lot of friends who bike, and I'm like, wear all of your helmets and several pads because people out here are crazy. Wear many helmets, yes. <laughs> yeah, I actually brought my bike when I was down for the show, and um, I was staying in Pasadena, so there's actually a fair amount. It looks like a fair amount of cycling infrastructure there that's been put in. But, yeah, there's also a few times where you're just, like, on this – highway-sized road, you know, and these cars are just buzzing past you, like, at amazing speeds, and it's horrifying. It's like, Oakland's so much smaller, and, like, you, you just can't go that fast. Yeah. And, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's, I think there's a lot better infrastructure in the Bay Area for cycling, but I do hear that it's slowly coming to the LA Basin. It, I've heard of some, some potential, maybe, plans to do, like, a biker's highway, like they have over in Europe. Where yeah. it's like over the top, which I think would be great, like separate roads, yes. <laughs> separate but equal, because no. <laughs> <laughs> um. So where can people find your work? Well, um, I'm in a few shops. Like I'm really terrible about re-upping, um, but I, I they carry me at Mission Comics up here. Um, I have to. I really should put together like a list of them on my website, but. If all else fails, one can go to frednolan.com and I have a store there. Excellent. Buy direct, guys. I mean, support your local comic stores, but also buy direct. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> you can help out the artists. Um, what, so I know you, Black Sheep 3 is your latest work. Is there anything else we can look forward to coming out soon? Black Sheep 4 will be out in the spring. Oh, excellent. It was, it was delayed a year. with uh, I was just like going great guns, putting pencils together, and my walls in my studio just covered in the pencils. And now things have like, you know, we've got to the point um, as parents now where we can kind of manage things because it's just triage the first like six months. <laughs> so, yeah, now I can actually like sit down and actually concentrate on it. So I've been working on that in conjunction with the major Taylor comics. So, yeah, that'll be out in the spring, and it'll be – Probably about 50 pages. It's, it, each one keeps getting longer and longer. I love it. I'm so excited for it. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make sure I hook you up. Oh, thank you, Brad. <laughs> appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. It's good talking to you.
with the pipe on the rise. The way I whip, it's no surprise. Hear a beat when the vessels blow. Slow to react as attention grows. That's how go when I'm to and fro. Like money and object in the inside glow. And I'm stricken with grief. Need another dose to begin no relief. With a lack of belief, I was faced with a need. Put a stop to my assurance that I had no need. But that's what they see when it ain't through me. The paranoia high and it ain't the weed. Set a little aside. Just in case they need it, it'll do or die. No one to care, so I better beware. Better hear the sound I'm empty and I can't afford to share. Met with a glare and a blank face stare. I don't need to ask permission, but the way it ain't there. And I'm ready to roll. Signs when yes, but my man say no. The time to react is passing by, so I ask him why, and I hear him sigh. Saying ain't the plan, and I should understand. Better keep the focus sharp at the task at hand. Hands grip what I don't have. Negotiate the way me that have. I ain't got the last laugh. Argument is void, we got the crap. Can't win a little when the insides churn. Should have caused a scene if we crash and burn. Lesson learned, suggestions firm. The chance is gone to sort the worst to Provided by Samus and Shubzilla. You can go to SoundCloud.com to check out Samus at SoundCloud.com forward slash Samus. That's SoundCloud.com forward slash S-A-M-M-U-S. And for Shubzilla, you can find her at SoundCloud.com forward slash Shubzilla. That's SoundCloud.com forward slash S-H-U-B. Z-I-L-L-A.